Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamath. And my name is Rahul Demania, a current third-year pediatric critical care fellow, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today's episode is dedicated to the transition between NICU and PQ. We will focus on the ventilation of the ex-premature infant who is graduated from the NICU care and transitioned to the PQ. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start with our patient case. A four-month-old, ex-27-week baby boy is transferred to our PICU after an echo at an outside hospital showed elevated pulmonary pressures. The infant was born via a stat C-section due to maternal complications during pregnancy. His birth weight was 560 grams. The patient was intubated shortly after delivery and had a protracted course in the NICU, which included a sepsis rule-out, increased ventilator settings, and a few weeks on inhaled nitric oxide. The intubation course was complicated by pulmonary hemorrhage on day one after intubation. After such an extensive NICU course, thankfully, the infant survived and was sent home on half a liter nasal cannula, diuretics, albuterol, inhaled corticosteroids, synthroid, multivitamin with iron, as well as vitamin D. The patient was able to tolerate breast milk via NG and had a home apnea monitor with pulse oximetry. After about a week's stay at home, the mother noticed that the patient's pulse ox was in the low 80s. The mother took the patient to the local hospital, where the patient was started on high-flow nasal cannula, which improved his saturations. An echo done at the outside hospital showed elevated right ventricular pressures higher than the echo prior. The patient was subsequently transferred to our hospital for further management. At our hospital, the patient presented hypoxemic, tachycardic, antikyptic. On physical exam, the baby appeared well-developed, had a systolic murmur heard throughout the precordium, and there was increased work of breathing with significant intercostal retraction and pertinently no hepatosplenomegaly. Due to worsening respiratory distress and FiO2 requirement despite maximum RAM cannula, the patient was intubated and placed on conventional mechanical ventilation. A blood gas prior to intubation revealed a pH of 7.1, and a PCO2 of 100. An arterial line and a central venous line was also placed for better access and monitoring. Initial ventilator settings post-intubation on pressure-regulated volume control or PRVC ventilation was notable for a tidal volume of 32, which was about 7 per kilo, a eye time of 0.7, and a very low rate as the patient was sedated and paralyzed. To summarize, Some key features in the HMP regarding this case. We have an ex-26-week premature infant who had a birth weight of 560 grams. The infant had prolonged mechanical ventilation in the NICU, currently using oxygen at home. Abnormal echocardiogram showing high pulmonary pressures. Hypercarbia despite the use of RAM cannula. And as mentioned, a patient was intubated. So, Rahul, can you tell us uh, pertinent diagnostics which were obtained when the patient was admitted to the PQ? The chest x-ray revealed hazy airspace opacification in the right upper lung concerning for developing pneumonia and atelectasis. The streaky airspace opacity in the left lung base medially also represented atelectasis. 
Now, I do want to highlight that the intubation of an ex-preemie, especially with elevated right ventricular pressures, is a high-risk scenario. And it is best managed by a provider with experience in a very controlled setting with optimal team dynamics. Adequate preparation to optimize the patient prior to intubation, as well as the knowledge on how to manage the post-intubation cardiopulmonary interactions are essential. I really would advise you to revisit our previous podcast on intubation of the high-risk pediatric ICU patient presented by Dr. Heather Viamonte. Like many peds ICU conditions, the management of the ex-NICU graduate in the PICU is a multidisciplinary team sport. So Pradeep, our patient likely has the diagnosis of bronchopulmonary dysplasia or BPD. Can you comment on the evolving definition of this diagnosis? Rahul, that's an excellent question. Let me first define BPD. Clinically, BPD is defined by requirement of oxygen supplementation either at 28 days postnatal age or 36 weeks postmenstrual age. The literature satisfies the difference between old and new BPD definitions. In the old BPD, which was typically what was seen before the early 1980s and usually seen in more mature infants, the pathogenesis is related to the damage caused to the lungs from mechanical ventilation and or oxygen resulting in inflammation and fibrosis. It can occur in premature as well as term infants. We see less of that old BPD now due to surfactant use and the use of high-frequency ventilation. In the old BPD, we have evidence of hyperinflation and diffuse parenchymal infiltrate. Lung histology shows dilated air spaces, fibrosis throughout the interstitium, and significant pulmonary arterial fibroproliferative disease. So Rahul, what about the new BPD? So the new BPD refers to abnormal or arrest in lung development. You have fewer and larger cystic alveoli. There's also decreased microvascular development in extremely low birth weight infants. So you really want to think about the alveolar capillary interface being altered in this definition. In new BPD, we see more evidence of dilated distal lung, less evidence of fibrosis, and more typically have an arrest of distal lung development and still have vascular beds that are abnormal. The key here is impaired lung surface area, decreased alveolar growth, and decreased vascular growth. It is important to note that in severely affected infants, fibrosis, bronchial smooth muscle hypertrophy, and interstitial edema, i.e. the old definition of BPD, may be superimposed on the characteristic reduced numbers of alveoli and capillaries. So there could be a mix of both. Rahul, let's transition and speak about the pathogenesis of BPD. What are the risk factors? The important concept here is to understand the maternal-fetal interface that can lead to premature birth. Determinants of disease include prenatal factors, such as chorioamnionitis, fetal infections, IUGR, preeclampsia, maternal smoking or drug use, with interplay of epigenetic or genetic factors. There could also be hyperoxia, inflammation, ventilator-induced lung injury. All of these postnatally can cause a disruption in vascular, alveolar growth, as well as lung function. Now, there is 43% incidence of BPD 
especially in those premature infants who are born less than 29 weeks of age. The earlier one is born, more severe is the bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And at autopsy, one can actually see regions of hyperinflation, areas of atelectasis, edema, and some pseudo-fissures between them. Remember that there are these dilated distal airways with little septae, and this constellation of findings is known as alveolar simplification. Pradeep, as it seems the histological architecture of the lung is altered in BPD, can you comment on the persistent respiratory disease seen in children with BPD? Rahul, patients with BPD can have persistent respiratory disease, which can be seen as the need for prolonged respiratory support, NICU hospitalization, chronic respiratory distress, recurrent exacerbations, rehospitalizations, exercise intolerance, wheezing, and increased susceptibility for chronic lung disease in adulthood. These patients may require long-term ventilatory support, either via an ET tube or a tracheostomy. To highlight epidemiology, did you know that 58% of preterm infants are readmitted to the hospital within the first year of life? 20% of these are admitted to the PICU, and 12% actually end up on mechanical ventilation. So this is a high-risk population that undergo multiple hospitalizations. Now, Pradeep, we mentioned the use of mechanical ventilation in BPD. Let's pivot today's episode and focus on management, understanding how to invasively ventilate a patient with BPD, similar to the patient in our case. How can we use our understanding of ARDS, let's say in an adolescent, to understand the ventilation strategies in BPD? Rahul, that's a great question. If you look at the lungs of a teenager with ARDS and hypoxemia, we see diffuse parenchymal infiltrates. In these patients, the CT scan will show a heterogeneous disease. Now, there is a portion of lung that is susceptible to atelectasis, HNS edema, and is usually a gravity-dependent portion of the lung. The top portion of the lung, which we call as baby lung, is what we want to ventilate and recruit without overstretching. It's a fine balance. This is why we use the ARDSnet protocol, which involves low tidal volumes, which is typically 6 to 8 ml per kilo. What we do using this low tidal volumes is basically try to ventilate the top portion of the lung, which we call as baby lung. Now, we use prone positioning and increased PEEP to help recruit the lungs in general. Great. Now, let's contrast this with BPD. What are the radiographic and physiologic considerations in our patient who is now intubated in the PICU? Now, in BPD, the CT may show hyperinflation, diffuse infiltrates, peribronchial lesions, ground glass lesions, cystic lesions, etc. Now, this is in stark contrast with CT of a patient with ARDS. Now, the patients with BPD can have large central airway disease like tracheobronchomalacia or subglottic or bronchial stenosis, and even granulomas. Now, patients with severe BPD can have small airways, which are remodeled, with, and as well as having mucous gland hyperplasia. And clinically, we'll see more secretions, which are not cleared well due to ciliary dysfunction. Now, these airways have epithelial injury, edema, smooth muscle proliferation, bronchoconstriction, and bronchial hyperreactivity. The patient with BPD also have decreased alveolarization, 
decreased vascular growth, i.e. fewer vessels, abnormal vascular remodeling, tone and reactivity, as well as impaired lymphatic function of the lungs. As these infants age, they can have sleep disorders breathing, diaphragm dysfunction, chest wall instability. In summary, BPD affects not only the lung parenchyma, but the whole respiratory unit, the pulmonary vessels, lymphatics, chest wall, and the diaphragm. That was a great highlight, Pradeep. And it seems like the take-home point is that the patient with severe BPD who is intubated in the PICU has vastly different physiologic and radiographic lesions compared to the -the run-of-the-mill teenager with acute ARDS. Hence, there is a different ventilation and oxygenation strategy that is required for the intubated BPD patient in the PICU. Now, BPD subtypes include those with parenchymal diseases, those with vascular disease, such as those with pulmonary arterial hypertension, evaluated initially with an echo, as well as those with proximal airway disease. We talked about tracheobronchomalacia being one of them. Additionally, a single patient may have more than one BPD subtype, i.e. they can have vascular issues as well as lung parenchymal issues. And this has been reported in the literature to be as high as 28%, especially those children who have all three subtypes that we mentioned. Now, before we dive deep into management, Pradeep, how do you evaluate the underlying lung disease in patients with severe BPD? Once the patient is stable, we can start with a chest radiograph and a blood gas and evaluate and see where the kid is in terms of their SpO2 and PCO2. At least in the initial acute stage, I do not recommend a CT scan right away, uh, but it can be done later. We can also evaluate the infant for chronic aspiration with a pH probe or a barium swallow or a swallow study. Sleep study, flexible bronchoscopy to evaluate structural airway disease, as well as an EKG, echocardiography, and even a cath may be required. Now, it is important to see what you want to prioritize here. You do not want to do all these investigations when the kid is acutely sick. Now, in terms of labs, we get a serum lactate, a pro-BNP may be required in a case-by-case basis. If the kid has pulmonary hypertension, which is very severe, following their BNPs uh, may be helpful. Additionally, interstitial lung disease a panel may also be required, again, on a case-by-case basis after discussion with your pulmonologist. The management of the patient with severe BPD in the PICU is really a team sport, which involves the pediatric intensivists, the cardiologists, the pulmonologists, the GI doctors, and the support staff, such as the speech therapists and the rehab team. It also involves open discussions with families as these patients are hospitalized long-term not infrequently. Family conferences at periodic intervals in collaboration with social work can help optimize decision-making, set goals of care, and allow for facilitation amongst the teams. Absolutely. It's a team sport. Now, Pradeep, you mentioned the radiographic and lab evaluation of these patients who have chronic lung disease. As we think about continuous monitoring in the PICU, do you have some management pros? It is important First of all, to prevent hyperoxia by targeting an SpO2 of somewhere between 92 to 94%. We should also avoid accepting an SpO2 of 90% as that can cause pulmonary hypervascular reactivity, 
and these children can have marked vasospasm of their pulmonary vessels. We allow for permissive hypercapnia, but avoid marked spikes or swings in PCO2 as long as the pH is buffered. If PCO2 is chronically elevated, its effect on pulmonary hypertension is not very clear. Elevated PCO2 may be a biomarker for severe parenchymal lung disease. Now, Rahul, we mentioned in the pathogenesis the abnormal vascular development in the pulmonary circuit. Can you comment on the cardiopulmonary interactions seen in a patient with BPD? Now, in patients with severe BPD, we have high pulmonary artery pressures due to lung disease. Remember, these children will have hyperinflation in some areas, atelectasis in others, and as we manage them in the PICU, they may have fluctuations in oxygenation and ventilation. Now, this can create a chronic heart disease as well, because this is all about cardiopulmonary interactions. Particularly, let's comment on the right ventricle. Patients with BPD may have RV dysfunction, especially if they have pulmonary hypertension. Now, patients downstream can have issues with left ventricular contractility, as we have at times an exaggerated systolic interdependence, which can affect LV contractility. The LV diastolic dysfunction may be due to persistent pulmonary edema. As these children are premature, it is also important to assess for abnormalities in cardiac development. These children will frequently have shunts, ASDs, VSDs, PDAs, for example, and the left-to-right shunting may create overcirculation. And in times of crises, these shunts may reverse, leading to hypoxemia. Again, left-to-right shunting ends up going right-to-left in times of crises. Now, fortunately, when children have these shunts, they serve as pop-offs during times of increased pulmonary pressures. As we mentioned, cath, as one of our diagnostics, it is important to assess for pulmonary vein stenosis, as this can be a fixed anatomic defect and can contribute to high pulmonary artery pressures. So as a summary, remember that the RV is relatively afterload sensitive and the LV is more sensitive to changes in preload. Now, as we set and titrate the ventilator in our patient with BPD, Pradeep, what strategies are you going to use for effective oxygenation and ventilation? The biggest point before we go into any specific ventilator strategies is to remember that the BPD lungs have a heterogeneous picture as compared to the two compartment models seen in patients with ARDS. There is marked variability of regional time constants, and as mentioned, airway secretions and pulmonary hypertension is also present in many cases. Some areas of the lungs may have normal compliance and resistance, whereas others may have poor compliance and high resistance. In this heterogeneous disease, there are also significant areas of high compliance and low resistance. So if we ventilate these patients with BPD using low tidal volumes, rapid rates, and low eye times, similar to what we do in ARDS, we run the risk of having worse distribution of gas, increased dead space ventilation, hypercarbia, the need for higher FiO2, and radiographically, progressively more atelectasis. As such, it is important to manage the patient with severe chronic BPD with high tidal volume. This allows for more gas to fill the lungs. Couple this high tidal volume, which is about 8 to 10 ml per kilo, with higher eye times and low rates to decrease the risk of atelectasis. Okay, to summarize here, BPD patients, in general, 
higher eye times, higher title volumes, lower rates. This is especially to account for the areas of lungs with higher time constants. Rahul, what's the definition of a time constant? That's a great question, Pradeep. The time constant is the time required for inflation of an alveoli up to 63% of the final volume or deflation by the same value, 63%. It is the product of resistance times compliance. For a normal set of lungs as a whole, the normal time constant is about 0.1 to 0.2 seconds. However, there could be some variability. And especially in children with BPD, they can have varied heterogeneous time constants depending on which lung unit you are speaking of. Rahul, can you comment on the use of PEEP in the intubated BPD patient in the PICU? These patients in general require higher PEEP. It opens the airways and along with larger lung volumes has a tethering-like effect. This stretching effect with high PEEP may favor airflow and actually may improve gas exchange. Pradeep, you frequently preach on rounds, PEEP is your friend. High PEEP with high rates can lead to air trapping and dynamic hyperinflation. So continue to reassess your patient, serial gases, x-rays, and ventilator scalars to determine the optimal rate to set on the ventilator in addition to the optimal PEEP. Now, Pradeep, let's take a holistic picture now. Beyond the ventilator, in these patients, what do we have to consider? Rahul, that's a great question. I would recommend not rushing towards an extubation, but really being patient and working to reduce the infant's distress, retractions, and dyspnea. The second thing to remember is these kids need optimal nutrition as they need nutrition for lung growth and development. So speaking to your nutritionist is very important. We also need to optimize therapies such as occupational therapy and physical therapy. Now, if the kid is having desaturations, which basically tells us that the kid is not quite ready to extubate, we should focus on weaning sedation and neuromuscular blocker as tolerated. These children are in the PICU at times for long periods. So optimize day-night sleep cycles, sleep hygiene, lab schedules, and more importantly, bonding with family and caregivers. Don't forget the catch-up immunization and uh, care for retinopathy of prematurity. Remember, Rahul, we are pediatricians first. I love these points. It is really a team effort like you highlighted. Now, as we conclude this episode, in your opinion, what does successful care of the BPD patient in the PICU look like? Successful treatment with the BPD is synonymous with good, supportive care. We want to do no harm. In this setting, we want minimal impact respiratory support. Prevention of harm, prevention of infections, prevention of right heart failure, excellent nutrition for growth and repair, as well as developmental assistance. You will frequently be coordinating care with your NICU or PICU team. Having a primary intensivist as a caregiver and a familiar team to quarterback Multi-specialty care should be a feasible goal. An optimal team has PICU, pulmonary, cardiology, GI, nutrition, surgery, respiratory, nursing, neonatology, and even palliative care working together. All these subspecialties are so helpful along with the developmentalists, 
pharmacists, case managers, social workers, the, and the rehab team. As families may be in the hospital for a while, and I know we have been saying this for a long time, I have had great success not only to be transparent, have a team-based approach with these families, especially doing family-centered rounds and having the families as the center of those rounds. We should have a roadmap from PQ admission to home and follow-up. So these are some of the goals we need to accomplish when the patient with BPD is intubated in the PQ. Yes, Pradeep, you're absolutely right. Now, in our PICU, we have frequently seen a sticker chart posted in the patient's room. And this sign can actually orient all team members to daily or even weekly goals. And I think that that's helpful. Rahul, I want to emphasize weekly meetings with care teams where we can discuss the pros and cons of different approaches. Collaboration with neonatology colleagues is invaluable. Some institutions I have been developing BPD or chronic lung units within their PQ. As mentioned, stable, mechanically ventilated BPD patients are going to have a unique model of care. And that includes tolerance of therapies, cares, and handling with minimum desaturations or cyanoses. Over time, there may be a less reliance on blood gas, and we may go more with clinical status as well as growth parameters such as weight and length. These children may be on diuretics, IV, or enterally, and thus we want to hit a sweet spot for fluid balance. We want to minimize FiO2, and at times we can allow permissive increases in peak pressures. Remember, these children have regional overdistension and phasic stretch, which may combat increased peak pressures. This is in stark contrast to our discussion of ARDS. Rahul, I feel like this could be an episode on its own, but do you mind commenting on the use of tracheostomy in the intubated BPD patient in the PQ? Absolutely. I first off want to highlight that this management decision requires transparency and, like we've mentioned throughout this episode, a team-based approach, which includes identification of family and primary caregivers. Patients requiring prolonged invasive or non-invasive ventilation have frequent bursts of steroids to prevent reintubation, pulmonary hypertension requiring medications, along with other patient-specific factors, which all in all may warrant tracheostomy after a few months of life. Now, one large study published in 2021 reported that 1.4% of patients with BPD had a tracheostomy. It seems, though, that the BPD population necessitating tracheostomy is growing. Rahul, let's bring it home. What a great episode. Do you mind summarizing our management takeaways from today's episode? Absolutely. Now, in patients with severe late established BPD, due to regional heterogeneity, we should ventilate with higher tidal volumes, 10 to 12 mLs per kilo, lower rates as that favors better emptying, longer eye times greater than about 0.6 seconds, and increased PEEP. When a patient with severe BPD is ventilated with these settings, it can help improve the FRC, thus improving RV performance, PVR, as well as comfort for the patient. Goals for gas exchange include pulse oximetry, 92 to 95%, allowing for reasonable hypercapnia, watching your pH. And after the patient is stabilized, long-term focus should be less on acute improvement of blood gases, but rather more tolerance of ventilation. Great job, Rahul. This concludes our episode today on ventilation of the ex-premature infant in the PICU. We hope you found value in this short podcast. 
We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast at our website, www.pqdoconcall.org. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my great co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.